0: Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. This is episode one in the health management series. And I'm here with consultant, consultant cardiologist, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. He works in York, in the UK. Um, Sanjay, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, about the work you do, um, and then also a little bit about the social media work you do as well?
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. Um, so uh, my name is Sanjay Gupta. I'm a doctor. I trained in the UK and then spent a little bit of time in America, in Boston, Massachusetts, where I finished my fellowship and then came back to the the UK and took on a consultant cardiology post in York, and I've been there for ten years now. As a consultant cardiologist, I sort of deal with all cardiac conditions, uh, diagnosing them, managing them. So I'm a general adult cardiologist. I have an interest in cardiac imaging, but on the whole, I just sort of am a general cardiologist. I, uh, you asked me about my social media work. This, uh, started about seven years ago when I'd just sort of taken on my consultant post, and I was sort of beginning to get a little bit bored, and I was thinking, well you know, now what? Uh, and I also started getting a little bit frustrated because I started realizing that I wasn't getting anyone better. I was, um, you know, I would see the same patients come back. So I It almost felt like I was putting layers of sticking plaster on patients. You know, they came in with something, I put a sticking plaster, they go and they come back. And it made me question as to exactly what I do, exactly what our limitations are. Uh, you never realize that uh, when you're studying and you're trying to get there, you know, you're, you're always sort of, you have a sort of story I view things but when you start seeing the reality and you're saying well actually who am I actually getting better here who, who am I curing who goes away and never comes back because they're completely happy and there was only a handful of such so you know, based on these questions I sort out well what do I do if my medicines aren't very active. then what is my role as a doctor and slowly and gradually I recognised that perhaps medicine should not or should not be just about distributing pills perhaps there's more to medicine than that and perhaps those aspects that we don't tend to disregard are even more important than the pills we And those include engagement and empathy. So, you know, building a relationship with the patient or making them feel like you care and that you're willing to listen to them. And for that little while that you have that interaction, making them feel like they're not alone, that you're willing to share their burden that they carry with themselves. And then so engagement, empathy. And then I thought education, education, the role of education is so important. The ability to allow someone to understand what's going on how it came about, what the limitations are with what you have to offer. And then using that education as a means of empowering the patient, empowering the patient to ask questions, empowering the patient to take charge, to take control. Because one of the big problems, I think, when anyone develops an illness, is this feeling of loss of control. It's outside your hands. You're just waiting. And sometimes, you know, being able to empower a patient to say, OK, well, you, you know, you can do this and you can do this. And, this. and also one really important aspect of um, medicine, which again is disregarded, is that the study and management of disease cannot be disjoined from the study and management of its effects on a patient's identity. That I think is really, really important. Allowing people to continue to be who they identify themselves as. Because if you lose that, you lose everything. You know, if if your whole life was about running and then you develop a chronic disease and the doctor just comes and says, Well, you can't run it. That's devastating. And to be able to, to be able to help people uh, hang on to to preserve their identity during times of chronic disease is really important. So i started realizing that you know these are really valuable things that are missing at this point in time and to try and get that out so i started uh, using social media as a means of just putting out videos where i would talk about conditions in a reassuring manner using simple plain language and where people are not feeling that i'm trying to sell anything i'm trying to sell my personality i'm trying to sell who i am but not a product as such and so i started putting these videos out and after a little while i started realizing that actually people uh, said nice things and uh, they appreciated them. And I thought, you know, this, this is making me feel good. And this is making me feel better than my day job was because my day job, it was just, I would get five minutes, the patient would come, I'd give them these pills, they'd go away and that's it. But, But when you, when you put something out there, something that is not constrained by protocol, you're not Someone else is not telling you, so you you can just express what you feel uh, and you can sort of express that in a very human manner. Then that can be very uh, nice for for, for the person doing it as well. So it was very empowering for me and I really enjoyed it. And then it took a life of its own. And now, you know, the channel, thankfully is doing well and um and i'm really enjoying it the thing i enjoyed the most in my day job in my day-to-day life brilliant
0: yeah i can attest to the uh the skills you have the human approach that you have and um body of the videos i i really enjoyed them um because i learned from them and then also uh they're just very- the progression health podcast is brought to you by better BetterHelp better is an online therapy service which will help you to more effectively manage your mental health mental health is very important and it's something that all of us are realizing now especially after the pandemic during the pandemic for me especially it was very challenging and i, I reached out to better help i uh, tried out a few of their licensed therapists settled on one for the majority of the pandemic and i found uh, the help that i received invaluable and the great thing also is that you can speak to your therapist outside of sessions uh, um, if it's not working out you can switch very affordable it's really easy to use also um, and if someone hasn't tried therapy before but you're kind of you know you're curious i would highly recommend BetterHelp. so what we've done is uh we've got a sign up link i'll attach in the show notes and basically you can get a discount to get started and uh, start improving your mental health today so BetterHelp for better mental health the progression health podcast has teamed up with trx so trx is a bodyweight training piece of equipment that you can hook up anywhere anytime and uh, i highly recommend it i use it in every session with my clients i use it to warm up uh, and I'll. So for stretching, um, but if you are traveling, which is where I recommend everyone use it, you know it's hard to get to a gym, uh, it's hard to find the time. But you could literally work out from your hotel room with the TRX um, and the door attachment that it has, where it doesn't damage the door, but it gives you an effective workout. I also like to add in other things like uh, glute bands and uh, resistance bands. Um, but once you have the TRX, then you can figure all that out. So get yourself fifty percent off on the TRX home workout equipment with the code Progression Health TRX and boost your workout effectiveness and consistency. Very informative. I think you come away with something in nearly every video, which is great. So you spoke about empowering clients and patients. So, you know, what are kind of some of the, the typical, we'll say techniques or just kind of ways that you have uh, empowered some of your patients? Yeah,
1: I mean, I can give you an example of this. Um, you know, um, I had a, I came across a lady who was about 55 who was completely broken mentally and physically. And the story was that she was a really you know, a healthy woman, well-to-do, in a really great job, and everything was great. She had, uh, you know, she enjoyed hiking, she enjoyed going and seeing her daughter in Australia, she loved traveling, and everything else. And one day, she started noticing that she was getting progressively, she started noticing that she was getting breathless when she was walking. So she was, so she eventually went to a doctor who did a blood test, and they said, oh, your blood test is elevated, this suggests that you may have heart failure. So we're going to send you to a specialist. So she sat there uh, thinking about this and she Googled and she found all this horrible information about heart failure, which made her increasingly concerned. Uh, She waited almost six weeks to see a specialist. uh, And those were six weeks of sleepless nights thinking I'm going to say this. I'm going to ask this about this. What does this mean for me? What does this mean for me being able to go and see my daughter? What does this mean for me being able to hike with my friends? What does this mean for me? So when she went to see the doctor, she had five minutes. The doctor looked at her and said, yeah, you've got heart failure and I think you need to be on some pills and we're going to get a nurse to come out to you and give you some pills. And so, and that was it. And she was shell shocked that that was it. You know, six weeks of sleepless nights for a five minute consult with uh, some tablets dished out at the end. Um, So eventually the nurse came to see her and said, look, you know, you've got this on these medications. And. These medications are good, so she started on the medications, uh, and then she started noticing that she was getting a bit more tired. She was not sleeping well, and it was very difficult for her to tease out whether it was whether it was a condition, whether it was anxiety. But what she suddenly started finding was that she was just not really enjoying life anymore. She started becoming more distant. Her husband. Uh, She became scared of any kind of intimacy with him. Um, She stopped going out uh, with her friends uh, because she felt that everyone would try and mollycoddle her. And she was told that walking and hiking and doing those things weren't helpful for her, uh, weren't going to be good for her condition. She was told, look, you can't have alcohol because you've got heart failure. You can't have caffeine if if you have heart failure. She went to the doctor because she was getting so depressed and increasingly lonely and socially isolated. She went to the doctor. The doctor said, well, I can't give you any antidepressants because you've got heart failure, you need to wait. Eventually, she became so miserable uh, that she went and paid a... Professor in Harley Street, uh, you know, to to see her, and she went in, and the professor looked at the thing, looked at her notes, and looked at her medication, and says, "Oh no, don't worry, you're an optimal management. There's nothing else we can do, but you're an as good as ma- management as uh, as you can expect." And that was it, and she was discharged, and, and so eventually she watched me on the videos, and she came to me, and she said, "Look, you know, I just don't know. My life is a mess." And I said, "Yeah, you know, I I agree that the pills." that you're taking uh, are the right pills. But clearly, this is not optimal management. This is, You know, I disagree with the professor who saw you. This is not optimal management. Let's talk. And she explained to me and she told me who she was and she told me about her life and how much uh, she loved hiking and how she would love to go and see her granddaughter, uh, her daughter. Uh, And during the course of that conversation, it became apparent what mattered to her. What mattered to her was not that she took tablets. What mattered to her was that she tried and reclaim her identity. She was losing her identity. Was able to spend some time with her and say, "Look, you know, uh, let's talk about sex in heart failure." And you know, all the data points to the fact that this is not something you should be scared of. You know, let's talk about it. I was able to reassure her with regards to that. I was able to reassure her with regards to traveling, and I was able to show her data and say, "Look, you know, on what basis do we think that something bad's going to happen to you? These are all fears that are enslaving you in your mind, and there's no reason why you can't travel." and there's no reason why you can't hike. In fact, actually, exercise may actually be good for you. So suddenly, because she developed a good relationship and she sort of developed that level of trust, she slowly started doing those things. And it was only about six months later she sent me a picture—a picture of her with her grand, with her daughter and a new granddaughter in Australia. You know, so she finally made it to Australia, beaming smile. Uh, with her daughter and her new granddaughter and her husband. And, you know, that, that's where this person wanted to be. This is where she wanted. She didn't want to be a heart failure patient on four different tabs. She wanted to be the person she was. All those things that made her who she was, she wanted to be able to reclaim those. So, so for me, that's a very satisfying thing. You know, when I think about it, I think, well, I would never know. I don't know whether my tablets would make a difference or not. People say they would, and maybe they do in a population. But do they make a difference to her? Who knows? We'll never know, right? No one will know. How do I know that by giving those tablets, I've made her live long? There's no way of knowing. But what I do know is I've improved her quality of life by spending some time with her and educating her and making her feel empowered to take charge. Oh, that's,
0: that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, so I keep going. So
1: those are the kind of, you know, those experiences, they they, 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 they enrich me and they enrich the patient. And, and that I think is, I think is so
0: nice about this. Yeah. That's like a true kind of, you know, success story. Do you think that, uh, That's what a lot of patients who would feel like they're in need. It basically sounds like uh, kind of a bit of autonomy, independence. You feel like that's what a lot of people are lacking when they feel like uh, they're, you know, kind of, quote, unquote, sick. or they have a diagnosis or their symptoms that they can't um, manage their life effectively. Or, um, you know, uh, what would be kind of a commonality among patients you see that is kind of the common, we'll say, ailment?
1: You know, I think everyone longs for freedom. You know, I think everyone longs for freedom, and actually, I think bad medicine tends to enslave, and good medicine tends to liberate, and that I think is the big thing. So, you know, people people like they like to know to have a diagnosis. It's nicer to know. To have a diagnosis than not to have the diagnosis because at least at least that way you know medical professions uh, professionals speak that language because they recognize the diagnosis. So they, there's some research you can uh, you don't feel as alone if you have a diagnosis because there are other people who have the same diagnosis. So you can identify yourself with other people who are going through the same thing. When you don't have a diagnosis, it's much tougher. Uh, but more importantly is the fact that most people just want to reclaim their quality of lives, and uh, unfortunately, what tends to happen is wherever someone is sick, you know, there is all this kind of general advice, this kind of cookie cutter advice, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, this could be bad. And everyone sort of suddenly takes on the role of being a carer. And uh, what patients want is patients want to go back the way they were. So I think, I think, you know, I think when there are two ways to take this. Whenever you're faced with a disease, one is you allow it to enslave you. One is to allow you allow it fill you with fear. I can't do this. I'm this. I'm a patient. I am at this. I'm... On the other hand, you could say, okay, well, this now teaches me that I have only one life, and I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to make the most. You know, I'm perhaps this brutal unveiling of my fragility will become my strength. Very good.
0: So, kind of just looking big picture at let's just call it Western medicine. Say in you know Great Britain. Uh, america what would you say are some kind of like shortcomings that people should be aware of when you know they're uh, going to a hospital so that they kind of get the most out of it because your approach sounds like you know amazing that you're empowering the client but then you gave an example of a situation where the, the or sorry i keep on saying the, the client is a personal trainer but it's a patient so the patient um wasn't empowered they were given uh medication so you know what are some things that people should be aware of when they feel like they need to uh, engage with let's say western medicine yeah
1: I think people should never be scared of asking how good the medication is so that that I think is really interesting because you know what happens is uh, we get uh, you come to a hospital and say oh you need to take this and you need to take this and you need to take this and that and I, I think that the first thing that patients should realize because it's very confusing and chaotic and scary and lonely when you're, when you're when you're worried about your health and someone says there's something wrong with you. And, and so you go there and you think, okay, well, give me five different tablets. Um, I think the first way to try and approach this is to say all tablets, all methods either make my quality of life better or make me live longer. Because really, there are only two dimensions to life, quantity and quality. So any treatment you have has to either improve your length of life and prevent bad things from happening to you or improve your quality. Um, Now, the thing with quality of life is quality of life is a subjective thing. So, you know, you know what your quality of life is. You take a tablet. And if your quality of life gets better as a result of the tablet, why wouldn't you want to take that tablet? You know, Uh, length of life, unfortunately, you will never be able to measure. Someone else will measure it because the only time you can measure your length of life is after your life. So the problem then is, well, If someone's going to give you medications for proving your length of life, unfortunately, you or that person will never know whether that medication has actually lengthened your life. So you're just taking it, right? You're just taking it, hoping that it'll give you the benefit, but you will never know. So to my mind, it's very important for patients to understand that. One, you want to know, okay, if it does prolong length of life, How do you know it belongs length of life? Well, has anyone studied a population of people just like this medication on them and found that that population lived longer as a consequence of taking that medication? And how much longer and how many people lived longer in that population? And that will tell you about how effective or how worthy that medication is to be taken, to be invested in, right? So the problem is no one gives you that data. So if something, you know, they'll say something like, oh, well, they, you know, it reduces mortality by 30%. But the problem with that is, you know, you can have um, it's a little bit like saying, OK, well, you know, you buy a lottery ticket and you say, OK, well, what are my chances of winning? And someone says, oh, don't worry about that. Buy two and double your chances of winning. It's percentages, relative percentages. They don't really make any sense. You know, you want to know exactly exactly what the numbers were and how many people survived as a result of taking the medication compared to those who did, you would be surprised that not many doctors know that data. We are just brainwashed and we're told, give this medication because the guidelines say so. And I, you know, and we just give it. Now, unfortunately, you wouldn't go to a car salesman and buy a car from them if they couldn't give you the figures you want about the car. Uh, But we go to a doctor and we will uh, take the medications put that chemical inside us without A, ever asking that question or B, being given a good answer. I think that's really important. And I think the other thing to say is, I don't mind If, if if a medication makes me live longer, even if there's a very tiny chance, then I'm okay taking it, provided it doesn't adversely impact on the thing that I can measure, which is my quality of life. So, you know, if someone says, oh, this is good, you'll live longer, but I find this medication gives me pain every day, then... I don't see any benefit in taking that because it's destroying the one thing that I know for something that I'll never know. So that's really important. And a lot of patients don't understand that and unfortunately don't feel empowered enough to ask those questions. You say to the doctor that, look, you know, okay, you're giving me the medicines. Tell me, are these to make me feel better? Are these to make me live longer? Okay, the ones that make me feel better, I'll try out. And if I feel better, I'll continue them. If I don't, then I'm not going to continue them because why should I continue them? And the ones that are designed to make me live longer, well, firstly, tell me how much better, uh, how much longer I'm likely to live based on the data that you have used to recommend these medications. And two, sure, I don't mind trying them if the data are good, but if they make my quality of life worse by giving me horrible side effects, then I can't see any point in taking them. Unfortunately, what happens is doctors will just pile the meds on, keep piling the meds on. And I think these days a good doctor is one who takes away the meds rather than gives more. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I feel like that's where your work comes in with uh, communicating the research, the data, the science in an easy to understand way, because it can get very technical, very kind of jargony. And, you know, for the uh, the patients, it's almost impossible to know who to listen to. You know, some people are telling stuff, like you said. So it's kind of like, you know, there's a conflict of interest there. So just for people listening and, you know, they're, they're like, oh, I have this health ailment or maybe it's with their heart even. How should they know? When is a good time to to see a specialist such as yourself? And then, you know, what's the kind of general age that men and women should get their heart checked?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the I think the first thing to say is that you know, what do you do um, in terms of most of the data tell us most of what we do um, in in cardiology in particular. I don't think we're very good at preventing things. From, I don't think we have medicines which are very good at preventing things from breaking. I think our medicines are better at patching things up once things are broken. So what I'm trying to say is I don't think there are many medications that you can take which will reliably say, okay, now you won't have a heart attack. But there are medications which are good if you have had a heart attack, at preventing you from having a second. So when you're trying to prevent bad things from happening, the first question you have to ask yourself is why do bad things happen? And to my mind, again, I've broken it down into four. I think age has a role to play. Well, you can't do anything about age. As you get older, things break things go bad, you know, so but you can't do anything about that. And then there's genetics, which has a huge impact. But again, you can't do anything about genetics either. And then there is that component of just bad luck, you know, you may just be very unlucky. Uh, you may, And again, you can't do much about that. And then there's finally lifestyle as well. And you can do something about lifestyle. So Wherever possible, I think it is important for people to pay attention to their lifestyle. Now, if you don't pay attention to your lifestyle and you're worried about your heart and you feel that having tests on the heart may allow you then to pay attention to your lifestyle, then good. Okay, have it. But if otherwise you're well and you're happy and you're getting along and you're trying to do all the best things you can by just continuing, unfortunately, there are very few medications out there which would then take that person. Is just getting on with their lives, but then they find that they've got some calcium in their heart arteries, you know, at the age of 60 odd. And obviously, the connotation is if the calcium, you could have a heart attack. What do you do to rid the calcium? Well, actually, at this point in time, the only things that work are uh, lifestyle, good lifestyle. And perhaps some people talk about giving those patients statins, but a lot of people, again, the numbers needed to treat are very, very high. You know, the, the benefit you would have to treat a ton of people. Over a several number of years to achieve any kind of benefit in that setting. So really, it all boils down to trying to live a good life, a life which is sort of um, a life of moderation, a life where you're paying attention to nutrition, uh, regular exercise, sleep, and stress. And I think stress is really important. You know, managing stress is very important. So if you say to me, "Do I need a checkup?" I think. If you have symptoms, you definitely need a checkup. So if you are breathless and you're finding you're getting more breathless or you're getting chest pains or if you're getting heart palpitation, something like that, you definitely need a checkup. If you're getting on with your life, uh, could something be brewing? Sure, something could be brewing. If you had a checkup, could that uh, be identified? Sure, it would. But what do you do about it? And that's the that's the real challenge, you know. At this point in time, it's just good lifestyle, and you know, some people talk about giving statins. So at this point in time, as you know, um, there is a technique called calcium scoring, which is where you can take uh, you can put a patient through a scanner and identify their heart arteries. And the majority of people in their sort fifties of and sixties, you know, the majority of people. If anything bad's going to happen to them, it's going to be a heart attack, a sudden heart attack. And that's the thing that kills the majority of people in that age group. So heart attacks happen because of progressive build-up to plaque in the heart arteries. And this test allows you to identify plaque in your heart. So you identify the plaque, but then what do you do about it? Well, at this point in time, most people don't put stents in or do bypasses unless that plaque were really tight causing a real tight narrowing and the patient were getting symptoms so in the asymptomatic patient (coughs) unfortunately knowing has just caused a whole load of anxiety um, and you end up sitting there thinking oh my god i wish i never knew because if no one can do anything if there's nothing that you can do about it? Why do I even want to know? I was much better off not knowing, right? So these are the dilemmas. I mean, I sometimes think, oh, I want to get a checkup. And then I say, well, what do I do with that information? I, I go to the gym, I, I, uh, I try and maintain a really good diet, I try, you know, if I can change something on the basis of that great, sure, I would. But if this is my life, and I can't change, or I think that I'm doing the best I can, then as long as I'm asymptomatic, I would just my own approach would be just to get on and enjoy my life.
0: Don't add in any additional stress. Because life is stressful enough, I guess.
1: It is, isn't it? Because, you know, again, uh, for example, you uh, this is happening all the time. People buy blood pressure machines. Then they'll say, oh, my blood pressure was a bit high. Or, oh, gosh, my blood pressure is high. What does that mean? Next thing they go to their doctor. They're worried about their high blood pressure. Their blood pressure goes up. The doctor does it. Oh, your blood pressure's high. Now you've got two people. Fine. Next thing. Uh, you got your you' you've you've been put on medications, and you carry this label of high blood pressure. Next thing, your insurance goes up, your travel insurance goes up. That increases your blood pressure further. Next time you go to your doctor, you're taking a tablet, you're getting side effects, you're not sleeping well. He does the blood pressure; it's high again. He puts more tablets on. And actually, you know, was that blood pressure actually doing you any harm? You know, it just happened to be that you measured it one day. So. So it can end up, you know, people end up being over diagnosed, over medicated uh, when you measure things. So I think, I think personally, you know, as long as you're living responsibly, living a life with moderation, it, just enjoying your life, and as long as you don't have symptoms, it's as good as it gets. That's where we all want to be, right?
0: To have uh, kind of serenity and peace, and uh, not to uh, lose kind of like vigor or the uh, the desire to live life to its fullest. Yeah. So, I think- so then. There's, is there no general recommendation for men or women as they get older uh, for when they should get their heart checked? Or is it just, is it kind of like it depends on the, the case and the symptoms and that kind of thing? I
1: think so. I mean, I think all the evidence these days, certainly for coronary disease, again, which is the big killer, is that you don't really do much or or there's no real major benefit in doing things if the patient is completely asymptomatic.
0: And I can imagine, kind of like you said as well, that if there was a, a cutoff, you know, 50 years old, I, I think the population would automatically start worrying and they would just start yeah. to, you know, imagine scenarios where, oh, my heart, oh, that's my heart. Oh, this is it. Yeah, you know, I'm on the way out now and it mightn't be the case at all.
1: Certainly for the cardiac side of things, you know, things like cancers, etc., cetera, you know, stuff like that. I think, you know, there is some merit in getting checked as you get older, especially if you have risk factors, et cetera, because getting checked, you know, there's a treatment that can be offered straight away. But with coronary disease, uh, there's no easy treatments. You know, if you were completely asymptomatic, you're living a normal life, someone says, oh, you've got a 70% narrowing in your heart artery, you need a bypass. You would say, well, no, I don't want to have a bypass. Well, I've got nothing wrong. You know, I'm, I'm just getting on with my life. I'm okay. Why, why are you wanting me to go and have something that major? So so it's, you know, when I talk about, um, you know, just getting on and if you're asymptomatic, just living a normal life, it's mainly to do with cardiac uh, things, uh, heart things, um, I think. Uh, if you ask me, I mean, in general, there are three things that can go wrong with the heart. If you if you sort of, you know, just for the sake of trying to answer that question in a bit more detail, um, the, there are three main things that can go wrong with the heart. Number one, the heart is a pump and that pump could be in some way damaged, either because you were born with a damaged heart or you may have developed a weak heart over a period of time and not known about it. That question can be answered with an echocardiogram, an ultrasound of the heart. So you have the ultrasound, if you have a structurally normal heart on that, then that's as good as it gets. Uh, The second problem that can happen with the heart is that the pump itself may be healthy, but the blood supply to it may be restricted. And this is where this cardiac CT scan, the scan that allows you to delineate the heart arteries comes in. And if that is normal, completely clean, then that's exceptionally good news and tells you that you're not in any major risk in the next three to five years. And then finally, the heart is also an electrical organ and it may electrically malfunction. Unfortunately, you know, you can't diagnose that before it happens. It has to electrically malfunction, then you diagnose in retrospect. I could be sitting here and my heart could electrically malfunction tomorrow. You know, there's no way of me knowing about this. But if it does malfunction, then I, and I get things like palpitations or blackouts, then doing heart monitoring over a prolonged period of time can be helpful. But, but, so those are the three basic tests that give you a good evaluation of your heart. Uh, But as I say, I wouldn't rush into them because you may find things that you don't want to know about and you can't do anything about. But if you get symptoms, absolutely, because then you know that tackling the thing you've seen will relieve your symptoms, thereby improve your quality of life.
0: Good. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds as though the moderate approach as well covers most of your your boxes there. Um, And then I guess kind of just not worrying excessively if there is no symptoms, you know, just focus on the symptoms. And if they're not there, focus on moderation seems like a very effective approach and uh speaking of moderation so i know uh, with covid you know mental health has been an issue for some people um and anxiety as well um you know i experienced it a little bit but um moderation helps and you know that's how i keep it under wraps but um how does anxiety and things like depression how do they affect the heart if at all is there any kind of uh, side effects?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think um, the first thing to say, anxiety and depression are an epidemic. They're not recognized as such, but virtually every patient I see in my cardiology clinic will be taking antidepressants, anti-anxiolytics, et cetera. And you have to ask, where is this coming from? Why are so many people so anxious? Why are so many people so depressed in a modern world where, Everyone's meant to be connected, et cetera. Where is this coming from? And I think some of it at least comes from loneliness, you know, even though we purport to be more connected, we're actually less connected than ever, I think. Um, The second thing to say is that, you know, anxiety and depression, they directly impact on the thing that matters in life. And that is quality of life. You know, quality of life is the only thing that is important in life. To us, you know, length of life is matters to other people because they become deprived of your, of your, of you. If something bad happens to you, but for you, the patient, the only thing that matters is your quality of life. You want to be independent. You don't want to be a burden. You don't want to be in pain. You want to have your dignity intact. You want, you, you know, you want to be fully functional. As long as you've got those things, that's really important. And so. Uh anxiety and depression, you know, they say anxiety doesn't stop you dying, but it stops you living. And so they they take away your quality of life. Anxiety and depression are also known to be very inflammatory to the body. And actually, if you look at most chronic disease, um, you know, the, the the basis, the foundation of chronic disease lies in inflammation. And anxiety and depression will enhance that inflammation. And you can often get into a vicious cycle where people uh, develop a chronic disease, develop anxiety and depression, and that anxiety and depression makes the chronic disease worse because it affects your sleep, it affects your nutrition, it affects how you are, and you get into this vicious cycle and everything gets worse. And And then finally, of course, you know, it's big business to give people antidepressants and anti-anxiolytics, and those medications probably also have effects you know they have side effects they have effects potentially even though some of them have cardiac uh, can increase the risk of heart rhythm disturbances etc so uh, you know some people say um, that actually prescription medications you know we're the most over-medicated generation ever and I'm sure that that has an impact on us so in every way uh, stress and anxiety are bad for us
0: yeah I like the idea of focus on your quality of life. That's, that's a really important metric, you know, no matter what age you are, who you are. So yeah, focusing on that and things that improve your quality of life um, is really practical and uh, very useful. So I hope, you know, people listening will will take that home with them. Um, So I've heard of an idea of people who are uh, metabolically healthy uh, while also being obese. So typically I think the view has been that if you're overweight or Actually let me update the term and say like you're carrying excess body fat, um, mm-hmm. that you are, you know, unhealthy and um, you know you're kind of let's just say less capable than someone of a of a normal weight. But then the new term that's come out is that you can actually your metabolism can be healthy. So do you have any thoughts around this? Um, and you know, is it possible to to carry excess body fat? But still have a healthy metabolism. Yeah, I think so.
1: I think so. It's it's not some it's not a subject I know too much about, um, but I definitely know uh, that you can carry. I think one of the really interesting uh, things that I've become aware of is this idea of the metabolic syndrome and diabetes in particular. You know. Because excess body fat, uh, the the big problem is this thing called metabolic syndrome and development of diabetes and diabetes as a risk factor and hypertension, etc. Um, unfortunately, the way diabetes is managed, to my mind, is lack is poor at this point in time. Uh, because what people do is that they use the blood sugar, so. so in some ways, if your blood sugar hits a certain point, Mark, the HbA1c levels, then you're termed as being diabetic. And if it doesn't hit that, then you're not diabetic, right? So unfortunately, the sugar, the measurement of sugar levels is what allows people to make that diagnosis. But unfortunately, when you look at those people who have just had a diagnosis of diabetes made, and you look back, you'll find that they've already many of them have already developed the complications of diabetes that would normally take 5, 10 years to develop, even before they were diagnosed as being diabetic. So you've already developed the complications associated with the condition before the condition is diagnosed, which tells you that the thing that you're using to diagnose the condition isn't a very good thing, because ideally you want to diagnose it before the complications develop not after the complications. Develop. So unfortunately, what is then beginning to happen is that, okay, well, fine. Then what happens is you try and treat the sugar, right? So everything is about bring the sugar levels down, sugar levels down. That's the treatment. Well, then what happens is, why is that? Why do we do that? We do that because we think, okay, otherwise something bad will happen. This patient's more likely to have heart attacks or strokes later on. That's why we want to keep the sugar levels down. Well, the research points to the fact that even when you do that, you don't seem to prevent macrovascular complications in the end anyway. So I get it all the time. I'm on my coronary care unit. and I would say, oh, tell me about this patient who's just come in with a heart attack. And they'll say, oh, yeah, he's got high blood pressure and he's had diabetes for 20 years. And I say, OK, and, you know, what's he been doing? And they say, yeah, he's been treated for diabetes for 20 years. Uh, and then I say, OK, so what are his respects? Why is he coming in with a heart attack? And he says, oh, well, he's diabetic. That's why. It's, why would he be treated for 20 years then? If you can't treat him for 20 years to prevent a heart attack, and then when he has a heart attack, say, oh, well, that's because he's diabetic. What was the treatment for? Why have we subjected him to treatment for 20 years? So the point I'm trying to make is that the thing that even with diabetes is that we 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 are going by the wrong marker. We're looking at the sugar, and perhaps we need to be a little bit more sophisticated. And increasingly, people are beginning to realize that this this thing called insulin resistance, you know, and perhaps we need to be more sophisticated. Maybe it's not the, maybe it's, you know, maybe what's happening is uh, our body's being hit by regular sort of dietary sugar, because sugar is in everything we eat, right? It's everywhere. So maybe our body's being hit by regular sugar surges from food, and our bodies are producing more and more and more insulin to try and keep that sugar down. And maybe it's the insulin that's harming us. And so You start developing the problems over a period of time. And it's only when your body can't produce any more insulin to cope that your sugar starts going up and you start being called diabetic. And maybe we should be more sophisticated and look at insulin levels and how our bodies react to insulin levels or how insulin levels vary in our bodies as a means of telling us how metabolically healthy we are.
0: Very interesting. And even other factors like uh, the lifestyle factors, like stress, sleep, all these other things. Instead of just the sugar, it's, it's like uh, life is much more complicated and there's a lot more nuance to uh, a condition than, than just the sugar levels. And we can actually improve someone's health and their quality of life a lot more by looking at the other factors than just the sugar. I hope I'm not overstepping yes. my, uh, my position here.
1: No, what I'm, yeah, I mean, you're right. What, what I'm saying is that the way we're doing things and our understanding is still very basic. And we need to be a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, we need to say, OK, you know, because a lot of people will say, well, look, you know, my blood sugar levels are OK, which means I'm healthy. Yeah. Well, it's, maybe you're not, you know, maybe you're not. So because maybe you're still getting all the all the destructive processes going on in your body and your sugar levels simply haven't risen to the point where they're called di- diabetes. So, So what I'm trying to get across is that we have to understand that there are real limitations in how things are being done. And a lot of the reason why things are being done in a certain way is cost-effectiveness, you know, it's health economics, et cetera. So in the NHS, for example, it's just far more expensive to be a lot more sophisticated, it's more time-consuming, et cetera. So it just seems sensible just to do this, but that's not necessarily the right way. And And, and those people who are empowered with, information who are able to ask questions will then go and say actually maybe I need to go and find those clinicians who will look earlier for earlier processes going on in my body rather than the way things are being done because the way things are being done isn't making a huge difference you know we're very good at patching things up but if you look heart attacks are on the rise younger people are having heart attacks you're seeing it all the time you know so we're good at patching things up and we' We would say, oh, well, people are living longer now, but are they living better? Are they, you know, or are they just heavily over-medicated, et cetera, et cetera? So, So when we're trying to work about how to preserve health, I think some of the ways that we define health at this point in time need to be modified and we need to be more sophisticated and say, OK, well, I need to understand my body. I need to look at it in a bit more detail. I need to look and see if there's a process going on rather than relying on a surrogate of that process uh, arising. You know, so the blood test is an easy surrogate. Uh, but actually, when you really look at it, the surrogate isn't a great surrogate.
0: Yeah, Actually, speaking of being more sophisticated, just your approach with that example that you gave of the woman. Um, who was unable to see her daughter. Um, that sounds like a much more sophisticated approach to actually have a sort of just a human conversation with them as opposed to seeing them purely as a patient who needs uh, medication. Uh, is that your typical approach with the client? Do you have the time to really understand their situation or you know, is it that it's always so limited that you only have five or ten minutes with the client? Yeah,
1: time tends to be really, uh, you know, know—we're we're very limited in that time Uh, but but as a doctor you know those are the things that interest me those are the things that that connection you know we all we all long for connection don't we so uh, for me I appreciate the fact that my my job my vocation allows me to connect with people and uh, and uh, whilst I may not necessarily have all the time to be able to do this and you know, and I would love to spend more time with my patients over a period of time, you start developing, um, you start developing skills where you can bu- build rapport relatively quickly. And that's another reason why I did the videos, because a lot of patients come and see me. And I say, but you know, why don't you watch this? Because this is exactly what I did here and have a think about it and then come back and see me and we can answer any questions you have, etc. So I use the videos as an adjunct to provide information. And for a lot of people, I provide the video Links even before I see the patient, so I know they've got this. So whilst they're waiting to see me, say okay, look, you know, at least you know who I am. So when you meet me, you're not like, oh, you can't, you know, if even if even if you feel like you know me before you meet me, I think I've done something good for you because that allows us to build a rapport immediate, and then we can get onto the business of me trying to answer your questions and me allowing things to happen which may help work in your favour. So. That's another advantage of doing the social media stuff that I do, which is it creates a huge resource of information distributed by me, the doctor, that they're going to come and see. So in some ways, I'm selling myself, but I'm also expressing my philosophy to them. uh, And hopefully that puts them at ease. Yeah,
0: you have a strong belief in what you do, but it's well thought out. And you're really effectively breaking the ice with the clients. I keep on saying clients, patients. And uh, they get a little they, They get. Kind of educated you know even before meeting you, so yeah, I think that's a really clever way to approach the health system um because yet you, you haven't i guess found it as effective uh, as it could be and you're you're almost making your own role or approach which is you know that's how I met you so um yeah it's working um, so just going back to connection and kind of uh pivoting a little bit so coffee is a, is a great way to connect nowadays you know everyone you know loves to uh, chat over a, a cup of coffee but uh, is coffee healthy for heart health you know what's the relationship between coffee and heart health because you know too much coffee I think everyone has been there and they felt a bit too hyped up um, yeah. but it's you know it's benefits I seem to find every study on, on caffeine promotes the benefits of heart health but you know or sorry longevity but I don't know is that true so what is your opinion on on the situation yeah.
1: I mean, there's been a long-held perception within the public and uh, healthcare professionals that uh, caffeine um, increases the amount of adrenaline in our bodies and will uh, increase the risk of heart rhythm disturbances. Now, the truth is that uh, there are two ways of looking at this. One is to go by sort of research and population studies uh, and see what that shows. And then there's the anecdotal side of things, you know. So there is no doubt, anecdotally, some people will say, when I consume strong coffee, this happens. And in those people, I say, well, if you have noticed a temporal relationship between drinking coffee and your heart palpitating or something like that, then the sensible thing is not to drink the coffee and see whether that sorts your problem. Because it's you I'm trying to treat. It's not the 10,000 people who've participated in that study. But if you look at the studies then they say that, um, well, they say that their coffee has four main effects on the cardiovascular system, okay? It causes sympathetic activations, it increases your adrenaline and noradrenaline levels. And actually, if you increase those uh, to a certain extent, then especially if you have already got a diseased heart, then there is a risk that, you know, the heart will speed up, you may get extra uh, extra irregular heartbeats, you may go into heart rhythm disturbances. So that's true. Uh, remember, coffee contains caffeine, but probably not as much caffeine as energy drinks. So, energy drinks are probably really harmful because they probably contain about, I don't know, four or five times more caffeine than in coffee. Um, so, that's one problem with caffeine that increases adrenaline and noradrenaline levels. It also can increase the amount of calcium within the cells. It can so. You know, cal- calcium can sometimes increase, uh, can be used to increase the heart rate. So that's another thing. However, ca- caffeine is also an antioxidant. So that's good news. So that's, you know, it has higher levels of um, antioxidant activity compared to even sort of black tea. And it has an inhibitory effect on something called adenosine receptors. And adenosine can sometimes cause AF. And if you drink something which has, which is in adenosine antagonist, maybe it's protective. So that's the sort of biochemical basis, the biochemical uh, foundation. But when you look at studies, uh, there are no really good convincing studies that coffee causes more heart rhythm disturbances. In fact, there were, um, in terms of population studies, I think there have been, most of the studies have shown that there's a reduction in things like atrial fibrillation, coffee ingestion. That's what the studies have shown. Same with ventricular dysrhythmias. So, you know, I think the research doesn't convincingly say drinking coffee increases the chances of bad things happening to you. However, if the question really is, why are you drinking coffee if you're drinking too much coffee? Is it to cover something else up? Is it because you're stressed? Is it because you don't sleep? You know, I was in America the other day, and uh, I was in America a couple of Three years ago, and I went in the morning Starbucks and there's a huge line of people and they've got these big mugs, you know, and they're and you think, well, why do they need so much coffee just to get up and get going? And it's probably because they're not sleeping. It's probably because they're overworked. It's probably because they're stressed and they're using the caffeine just as a way of, you know, uh, getting them going. And that, I think, if you're using it as a as an aid, as an adjunct to try and mask all the other compromises you're making, then that probably is a bad thing. So, I think in moderation, coffee there's no really good evidence. There's no evidence that it's a bad thing, uh, but it should be in moderation. It should certainly not be used as something to cover up other inadequacies in uh, one's lifestyle. Of-
0: Absolutely, yeah. it Shouldn't be used as a band aid, and then moderation yeah. is important, and also. You've got to be very careful about your sleep. I think sleep is more important than how you know awake you are during the day. Like You don't need to be uh, caffeinated um, at the expense of your sleep. You know, sleep is just you can't uh, get by without getting enough sleep, really. Um, but yeah, that's very interesting. And then another very interesting video you had is uh, why magnesium is good for you. And just by the way, I, I just uh, picked out some of my questions from uh, Dr. Gupta's YouTube channel. So I'd highly recommend that but uh, the one that I currently am referencing is why magnesium is good for you. So um, I don't know a whole lot about magnesium, but I've heard a lot about it. So could you just give us a little quick synopsis of it and then why it is beneficial for heart health?
1: Yeah, I mean, magnesium is a is a vital um, iron that is required in the body. And actually, if you look at uh, all the available data these days because of modern uh, farming methods, et cetera, uh, up to three quarters of the population are are low on magnesium. That's the first thing. The second thing is it has uh, it's involved in several several reactions important reactions that go on in the body uh It has several beneficial uh effects you know it uh, It has a vasodilatory action so magnesium tends to open up our blood vessels when our blood vessels open up our hearts have to work less hard, so that's important. It has an anti-inflammatory role, and that's important. It has an anti-dysrhythmic role, uh, and that's, again, important. It has a ton of uh, beneficial effects on the body in general, at least biochemically. Um, It's also very difficult to measure. And therefore, unfortunately, because because a lot of people don't know enough about it, they would just do a simple blood test. And if the blood test looks OK, you get told, well, your magnesium levels are OK. The blood test is not reliable at all, and therefore you cannot go by this. Um, what we do know is that it is a it is something that is generally safe. Uh, the body copes with it well. It's difficult to mistakenly overdose on it. Uh, and in some people, it can have a really meaningful impact on their quality of life. So. You know, I came across magnesium because I was doing videos on heart palpitation. And uh, there's a particular kind of heart rhythm disturbance, no as ectopics or PVCs, which are little skips, which are commonly seen in, you know, people who are going through a lot of stress. Very, very uh, scary, very troubling. And a lot of people who get this just are at the end of their tether as to how to get rid of them. And modern day medicine doesn't have any answers to this. So I was um, doing this and I then came across a video actually on YouTube by a patient who said I took magnesium and I felt so much better. And I thought, OK, well, that's interesting. I'd like to look into it. And uh, But I couldn't talk about it because I didn't have any personal experience. And at the end of the day, I'm trying to produce a channel which has to have some kind of you know, data. The foundation should lie in good, honest data. So I looked through all the journals and I found a small study in Brazil where they did use magnesium for ectopics. And they reported that actually, indeed, the magnesium was very effective in reducing these ectopic heartbeats. So I did a video on that. uh, And then what happened is two things. One, a ton of people came to me and said, when they started the magnesium, they started noticing all these amazing benefits. They started noticing their palpitations settled. They started noticing they were sleeping better. They started noticing they were calmer. They started noticing their leg cramps had disappeared. So I thought, wow, great. You know, uh, Now I have some evidence from people saying that it improves my quality of life. They have measured it. They have said it improves their quality of life. And so I started recommending it. And I said, look, you know, anecdotally, I get lots of people saying that uh, it's actually they feel better as a result of taking it. And before I knew it, you know, that, that's that been the most popular video I've ever done. I'm amazed because, you know, it was, it's been by far the most popular video I've ever done. And a ton of people, virtually everyone around me started taking magnesium. And a lot of people come back and actually thank me. I've never had a patient come to me and say, oh, why did you recommend that magnesium? You know, everyone is happy taking the magnesium, much more so than taking a, a medication of some sort, you know, because this is a natural um, thing and the side effect profile is very good. There's not much in the way of side effects. And suddenly you may just find that there are things that are going on, which you've lived with, and they suddenly just disappear.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, you love to get uh, something that works. There's, there's a lot of things out there that don't work, especially... You know, coming from the fitness industry, there's a lot of supplements that are touted as working and they just don't deliver. So that's brilliant and uh, great to know that uh, your work is being well received with lots of use. Uh, just one question that comes to mind is um, the, the, the parasympathetic nervous system and the ability to like relax and rest and digest and yeah. um, kind of slow down um, and to activate that system. Um, do you have any kind of like recommendations for people, you know, to kind of maybe sort of like settle their heart or lower their stress? you ever come across clients um, who struggle with that um, and you might have to give recommendations around that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot to be said for, you know, things like, um, uh, this is a big problem. I mean, in fact, there is this whole condition known as a dysautonomia, which is characterized by an imbalance between your flight and fight and your rest and digest systems. Some people even term it adrenal fatigue. uh, You know, it is a burnout where you're Where you're hyper aroused all the time, you are wired and tired. And in those people, I think, you know, I think um, things like mindfulness, deep breathing exercises, uh, you know, having rituals, making sure that you are really spending time looking after yourself, uh, that you're that you're getting into a good routine, that you're paying really good attention to the time you go to sleep that you're avoiding doing so many things which disrupts the normal patterns in our lives. that can make a huge difference, you know, but but when you're trying to improve the vagus nerve, it all boils down to when you're trying to improve your parasympathetic, what you have to do is look after yourself. You really have to pay attention to those things. So a simple uh, way to try and explain this is a lot of people will lie on their bed and they'll be looking at their phone, right? And that's a means of relaxation. For a lot of people, you know, you lie down in your bed and you're playing on your phone and you're looking and doing this, et cetera. The problem with that is, again, what tends to happen is we then stop associating the bed with sleeping. So, you, you know, uh, in some ways that can be quite harmful because what you're doing is by looking, you're increasing this adrenaline in our bodies because that's what it does. You know, you're you're reading news, you're getting blue light, you're flashing lights and all that kind of stuff you're arousing the adrenaline, the flight and fight response all the time. And therefore, that adrenaline doesn't leave you straight away when you want to go to sleep. It stays in your body. And therefore, then you spend the whole night tossing and turning. Next morning, you feel worse. And then when you come back, first thing you want to do is lie down. But because you're still wired, you put on your phone and you do the same thing again. And so for a lot of people, I say, well, okay, you know, you have to be very careful. You If you are You do not go and lie on your bed unless you're ready to sleep. You know, you have to retrain your body to understand that actually, if I'm lying on my bed, that means I'm ready to sleep. If you want to go and be on your phone, don't lie in your bed doing that. Uh, Those are really important things. So we get into these really, really bad habits. You know, we get into the bad habits of not sleeping, then having more sugar in the morning. Then you're stimulating, you know, going without meals for a prolonged period of time, then having a heavy meal after that. I think we just have to really pay attention to try and readdress that balance. And and I think breathing and a lot of people overbreathe and a lot of people hyperventilate. And those things can all have a huge impact. And mental health is so so important. You know, physical health. You cannot be physically healthy if you're mentally unhealthy, and therefore mindfulness stress uh, relief meditation pilates yoga uh we all those things can be quite helpful uh and those people who do it and exercise is very good a lot of people say well exercise you know the reason exercise i think is so good is because it can be a meditative experience that i think is so important about exercise yeah
0: it's kind of like you're only as strong as your weakest link so if you can work fairly hard but you can't relax Equally as hard, you've got a weakness right there And you yeah. could end up running into to problems And uh, yeah, I, I um, Add another series on sleep And just going back to, you know, the time spent in bed They just recommend, the experts recommend You, do, you know, you're, you're in bed for three things So for sleep, for sex And then for recovery for, from sickness So the three aspects pretty much um, Because otherwise, like you said the, the body gets accustomed to being in bed But not relaxing And then you, you run into sleep problems Which is, you know, a disaster um but you just touched on exercise uh so to wrap up could you just talk a little bit about your video of uh heart disease so exercise in the heart because i think a lot of people would you know the go to might be to exercise less or be less active like that woman you mentioned um but um what is your opinion on exercising you know with heart disease and just for general heart health
1: yeah i mean i think exercise is in some ways the perfect medication isn't it because um it gives you immediate, uh, it makes you feel immediately better. Uh, you know, if you've done, you will know that if you go for a run first thing in the morning, you're buzzing the whole of the morning. You know, that's the first thing. Uh, everywhere we see exercise has been shown to reduce inflammatory levels, uh, inflammation levels with the body. So it has a direct effect on inflammatory load in the body and it doesn't really have any side effects. So in that sense, it's very good. I think, um, where I think, One of the most important things for exercise is it builds our muscle tone up. So that I think is very important because with chronic disease, for example, any kind of disease, one of the things that comes along with that is muscle wasting, frailty, which makes everything worse. So keeping your muscles in tone and good shape is incredibly important. Um, I think exercise can be a meditative experience. I think exercise may allow people to be more social. It can be a way of reducing loneliness. It can be a way of experiencing freedom, because when we exercise, we feel free. So it has so many other benefits on on our mental health, on our muscle tone. It, uh, all the research points to the fact that uh, if, you, if you take people who have heart disease or who are suspected of having heart disease, and you put them on the treadmill, and they do something like... Uh, Called the Bruce protocol which is sort of every three minutes it goes the treadmill goes up and in incline and speed uh, and if they do more than nine minutes they fall in a generally low risk category so people who do more than nine minutes are low risk people who do less than six minutes are higher risk so sometimes you know you can have people who have a 80 percent narrowing in their heart arteries and if they do more than nine minutes without problem Many doctors may turn around and say, well, that doesn't need fixing. And on the other hand, if they had the same narrowing, but they could only do sort of five minutes on the treadmill, then you worry a little bit more and you want to fix it. So so just being able to do nine minutes in itself tells you that you're in a low risk category. The other thing, of course, to say is that exercise can be a very good way of testing the heart out and testing how well you are. You know, if you can exercise, if you have a problem with your heart, it will manifest first during exercise. So the answer is not not to exercise, the answer is pay attention to that. And if you do, then you notice something, then it gives you that warning that you need to go and get checked out and get it treated. Uh, One other thing I would say about exercise, which is again, very important is that for most people, again, in the 50s, 60s, the thing that's gonna kill them is a heart attack. And heart attacks happen because of progressive plaque buildup in the heart arteries now what happens with exercises is that you are in a controlled manner trying to you know you're trying to increase blood flow through this this narrowing and of course the more if you if you increase the demand the supply is not going to necessarily match the demand during that narrowing in the in the short run that's not necessarily a good thing but if you do it in a controlled manner over a prolonged period of time your heart will form its own natural bypasses called collateral vessels that bypass this narrow. It's a little bit like um, if you have a highway and that's getting progressively narrow. Uh, the traffic will find its own destiny, will find a way out. You know, the traffic will start look, take, taking sides, side roads and getting through because they know to avoid that area, particularly at rush hour, for example. The exercise is like stimulating rush hour in a controlled environment. So over a period of years, you'll start developing these collateral vessels. Which allowed the blood to get to its destination without being completely reliant on this narrowed artery. So, if this narrowed artery does block off, the traffic's still getting through to where it needs to do. So, you don't have as big a heart attack. The exercise can be very helpful. That it's called collateralization or development of collateralization of blood
0: vessels. Oh, that's amazing! The body is like just you know the best machine ever created, right? So that is like fascinating to hear. I I never uh, realized that before, Um, and good to know that exercise is still medicine. Uh, That's something I like to believe in and preach to my own clients. Um, Dr. Gupta, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Is there anything that you want to leave the listeners with or mention, or, you know, maybe any videos that you have coming up?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, my message is always the same, that, you know, there are only two important things in life, length and uh, quality. uh, And uh, wherever you are, I think uh, there are three things. I mean, the more I think, I, you know, as, as part of what I do, you end up becoming quite introspective and you start questioning everything. And, you say, and I would say that, you know, the, thing, the things that will always make our quality of life better. The thing that will always make our quality of life better are um, to care, to share and to be grateful. And if you do those things, three things, I think you will find that your quality of life improves. And if your quality of life improves, uh, then that's all we ever want.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, that's a very uh, practical takeaway. Uh, Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Gupta, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much for having me.